Coming to you from Emanuel Presbyterian Church in Tacoma, Washington, it's Ask Science Mike Live! He's got questions, he's got answers, even though he may not understand, he'll talk anyway. He's got problems, he won't solve them, but he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Thanks for taking my question. Um, many of us find ourselves in the position of defending science on Facebook and in public conversation. Uh, and I think many times that becomes a, a conflict between the world the way we can verify it is and the world the way people would prefer it would be. And so it becomes a tough sell. Uh, you are somebody who has been successful at persuading people to, to choose the truth. What's your secret? Okay, great question. My secret is I am just a really, really manipulative person. <laughs> it drives me crazy because um, I have this, this very intentional vulnerability. And, uh, and the people who are closest to me say I'm manipulative. So my wife is like, you're super manipulative. I'm like, what are you talking about? I used to be manipulative because I would in create an emotional response in people to get what I want. But now, I don't do that. Now I create an emotional response in people so they'll get what they want. That's totally different. <laughs> and uh, uh, my friend Michael Gunger says I'm the most authentically manipulative person he's ever met. <laughs> so I will confess that to some degree I see humans as computers running software that can be manipulated with, uh, with the right code. So how do I... Uh, get people to join me in conversations that may traditionally be adversarial. Uh, brain science mainly. I understand that um, a lot of our discourse is centered around rallying identity via amygdala activation, so people get really angry, and confronting other people by uh, shaming them. And that is somewhat successful. You can actually drive social changes with a shame, but when you shame people, you don't change their ideas. You encourage them to hide them. And if you encourage people to hide their ideas for a long enough time, they do things like answer polls one way and then go to the voting booth <laughs> and no one's watching and they're like, check this out. <laughs> right? Um, and that's... Oh, uh, internet, I made a birdie and it was funny. So, uh, they can't see it. So, what I try to do, uh, let's, let's talk science for a second. I'm a former evangelical, and as you know, evangelicals are universally scientifically affirming folks. And um, my science mic work started not where we are now, where it's this weird social issues, Dear Abby, unsolved quandaries in philosophy and science show. Originally, Ask Science Mike was like remedial science for evangelicals. <laughs> and I started by saying, I understand your perspective, because I held it too for most of my life. And I understand that given your context, it's a reasonable thing to believe. And I said, let's not assume that I'm correct. Let's explore this viewpoint and see what fits and what doesn't. So you make people feel very safe, and you make people feel respected. That lowers their cognitive defenses. 
Now, the other thing I do, this, this is the real dirty trick, is amid all my facts and figures, I usually tell stories, right? So even in the context of science, I will often describe in a narrative fashion what incorrect beliefs or approaches to scientific fact do to real people, especially people I know. And that, uh, A, lets people place their consciousness in someone else's. When we engage in a story, we take on the persona of the protagonist. And it lowers and almost eliminates cognitive defenses and skepticism. Uh, now, this can be a dark art. Uh, there's, there's kind of a thing right now where people make a lot of money writing fake narratives and putting Google AdWords to them, and it's kind of destroying civilization. I hope I'm not exaggerating. Um, or I hope I am exaggerating. Um, but done right, starting by saying you respect and understand someone's position, avoiding activating the amygdala, and telling stories is a good way to go. With this caveat, with outright abuse and oppression, sometimes you actually have to start with like an amygdala shock. People have to have a visceral response to what's happening. So like it's very possible someone could take the answer I just gave and retroactively apply it to say, I don't know, hypothetically, the Reverend uh, Martin Luther King Jr., and present a very neutered, toned-down version of a historical figure saying he never raised a fuss, which is historically completely wrong, right? So there was a, there was, there's often a cycle to social advocacy where is there is a necessary outpouring of anger and frustration and lament that pushes back on extremely abusive, dangerous behaviors, but then is followed up with a more open space for conversation and change. That is a societal look. Um, a personal look may look more like if you're in an re abusive relationship with someone. Sometimes you can't do the create a safe space and share a narrative because they're punching you. And sometimes the only way to stop that behavior is actually to just kind of let the inner animal out, which will kind of put their guard up because they'll, they'll feel physically threatened, which may be the only way to create the space. Um, but in general, in my work, I'm always aware that systemically I'm in a, you know, a position of historic privilege. Like there really has never been a group of people that have the kind of automatic authority and deference that modern straight white men have. And that means um, I get to always be really calm, I get to always um, try to create space and in some ways have a step of distance when I'm talking with someone who disagrees with me because I'm not the one with a boot on my throat. And that's also why in my work I'm careful, I don't necessarily prescribe my approach to everyone. I think it can be very 
twisted and sick to expect um, a lesbian woman to explain to people who are trying to take away her right to marry and transfer property in a calm manner what's happening. Now, of course, her amygdala was going to be aroused. She's, she's worried that with one quick legislation change, if she goes in the hospital, her wife can't visit her. So that's why we have to create social coalitions to get anything done. It needs all of our perspectives working together to drive change. And uh, if my email inbox is any indication, a majority of the country right now is afraid that we have just taken a giant step backwards. And I think that means we need to grieve and we need to lament and we need to keep working. It might be more important today to be an accomplice in fighting for equality for all people than it was three weeks ago. And uh, we all need to think intentionally like that. Not only how do we protect people, but how do we actually create effective conversations that start changing minds of people right on the edge. You know what I mean? Like I'm probably not gonna try to go to an alt-right rally and talk about racial justice. Like they're pretty far gone. But I sure as hell better show up at Thanksgiving and talk to my own family. Because no one else is going to. So just to kind of stem off of, from what he said, um, thoughts versus feelings is kind of what I'm hearing. And I feel like the points that you made were very true of how you approach a person. But it makes me wonder from a child growing up to an adult, how they take in information. I mean, stemming from education in itself, what if it'd be a better idea to teach kids, say, critical thinking skills, or how mm -hmm. to have an open discussion and learn how to debate correctively? So that's my question. Uh, well, my answer is I agree with your question. <laughs> that one was easy. Do, 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 do. No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I think part of the problem we have today is related to how we teach our kids several, several ways. One, we try to teach our children a social narrative instead of how to evaluate social narratives. This is a problem. We wrest control over what group gets to portray the historical narrative. And I've never met a historian who peddles in a narrative. Historians do their work by understanding that different people in the same historical context present different accounts of events and facts. And um, this has all kind of messed up implications. So like um, Thanksgiving is a pretty weird holiday. <laughs> like uh, we're celebrating like a bunch of like undocumented European immigrants <laughs> sharing a meal with uh, people who are like, yeah, come on in. And we're like, that's awesome. By the way, this land is our land. <laughs> but our social narrative is like, oh, they, you know, Native Americans were so happy 
we were here and they helped us survive. And, you know, it's just been peace, love, and happiness ever since. <laughs> and uh, messes up how we read the Bible. We read the Bible as like this one narrative that starts in Genesis and ends in Revelation. And we don't acknowledge the fact that the Bible is actually a bunch of narratives kind of fighting about who God is. Uh, which, by the way, like, if you follow my work, you know me and Paul are complicated. <laughs> but lately I've been getting really into Paul because he was kind of like the first Christian bad boy. You know what I mean? Like, they wouldn't have put Paul's epistles on the shelf at Lifeway. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, he kind of, like, started fighting the orthodoxy of the church in Jerusalem. And they were like, what are you doing? He's like, well, I'm going to go plant these churches. They're like, you can't do that. He's like, no, I'm going to plant churches with the Gentiles. They're like, oh, Gentiles, have fun with that, whatever. <laughs> and Paul goes and plants all these churches, and then they hear what he's teaching in Jerusalem, and they're like, whoa. So they send people to correct Paul's bad teaching. And then Paul gets really mad about it and writes a letter to the denomination, like, why are you drifting from what I said? And we call that the New Testament. <laughs> you know, like, the first thing, like the New Testament starts with like, like the first Rob Bell. Like it's amazing. So, uh, and so the Bible's not like a, a neat narrative and neither is our history. So we need to teach people how to just understand multiple narratives and test them and realize that pretty much every narrative has some reason for existing. But we also need to expose children to multiple narratives. And we fail to do that because systemically, we fund our schools with property taxes and we allocate school funding based on local tax collection. So it creates an incredible economic segregation that a little too cleanly also correlates with racial segregation. So my children go to a school where they feel like they have a very um, multicultural experience. But all of the children of color in my children's classes are affluent. So I've realized how my children, their narrative about race in America is pretty wrong. Um... I mean, because their dad is a, is a podcaster. <laughs> so we're kind of on the lower end of the school's income gradient. And, uh, um, but I've had to have serious conversations with my girls about, they, 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 they would ask me what's happening in Ferguson, what's happening in Detroit. And I had to sit my girls down in, one's in middle school, one's in elementary, and say, Tallahassee is one of the most racially and economically segregated cities in the country. What you're talking about is happening five miles from our house. And until we structure our schools, like instead of an industrial age factory worker education program, that's what, we've, that's what it's built. Our schools are an intersection of training factory workers and dealing with kids that have to work on farms. That's where the model comes from. It's a little antiquated. Um, so we need to retool that. We need to present multiple narratives. And we need to just take all that 
same tax money for the schools and divide it equally among the schools in a given geographic area. Um, because otherwise we're creating a structurally classist and racist education system that reinforces a single narrative that then children don't have the intellectual tool set to approach the problem that produced them and there we have the difference between systemic and individual racism, sexism, and classism. And uh, it's gotta start with schools. And when the schools aren't doing it, it's gotta start with parents. Um, I'm a little reticent right now to talk too much about my kids' schools because I mentioned some stuff on, uh, on Twitter and the internet thought they would advocate on my behalf. So, <laughs> uh, but I would say generally, when things happen at school, Call the principal, call the teacher, call the school board, and uh, the only people that will drive change in America is you. We can't wait for somebody else to do it. I've actually been really encouraged uh, post-Trump because protests have been matched by people forwarding scripts and phone numbers for congressional representatives. Um, I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, Let's work in the system and outside of the system to change the country, because um, otherwise somebody else will. Um, so I've only read your book. I haven't listened to podcasts, so I don't know if you've covered this there. But um, you mentioned your wife's response to when you shared about being an a atheist for some time. Um, I'm curious a little more on the story and what went down as your timeline continued. How did you handle marriage mm -hmm. and transitioning out of the church? Did her faith, I'm sorry, out of the church you were in, yeah. um, did her faith organically shift or did she feel pressure to shift since you were shifting? Um, so maybe just also within this, like how do you handle marriage and one of you having a faith crisis and coming together on that? Sure. Great question. Uh, there's a liturgist podcast episode called The Other Side of the Mattress that uh, the Honey Badger, a.k.a. Jenny, a.k.a. my wife, was on, where she talked about that from her perspective. Uh, for a while, it was like the most downloaded episode we'd ever done. Um, it was just smooth sailing, easy. <laughs> Let's see, at first we uh, agreed not to talk about it which meant we talked about it every night. <laughs> and she would say, I don't want to talk about this anymore. And I would say, okay. And then she would talk about it some more. <laughs> and then we didn't know if we could stay married um, for a while. So that was, that was a good time. Um, And then people at the church started to attack me because I thought like the classy way to tell people my beliefs were changing was on my blog. <laughs> so I'm teaching high school seniors in a Southern Baptist church. And on Chick-fil-A day, I wrote a blog post about why I think it's okay if people have same-sex marriages. Church loved it. <laughs> um, you know, immediately people called the pastor to express their support for having me removed as a Sunday school teacher and deacon. And then, like, even though my wife's, like, real mad at me, she was real protective of me. So now it was like, okay, church people, just so we're clear, 
I'll stab all of you. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so I was like, no, 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 forgive them. They know not what they do. I, you know, I've become an enlightened uh, follower of Christ, and they're Pharisees, and they can't help it. And <laughs> Seriously, like, oh, man, like, I'm just like a real good Jesus person now. I've learned since then Jesus tells a story about the prodigal son. You've heard this story. It's pretty good. Um, That I was a prodigal. And the thing I took from the prodigal story was that God loved me and was happy to have me back. And I forgot there's another character in that story, the older brother. And the older brother just stayed and worked the whole time. And I recently realized that all of my Baptist brothers and sisters are older brothers. And they're going, wait a second, God. He went and ate with pigs and atheists. And he's come back and, as one of my uh, former friends says, I have a national platform leading thousands of people to hell. And uh, that's a quote. And uh, they're like, God, I've been here the whole time. Why does he have a book deal? And... I've mistakenly painted them as either adversarial or outside of the faith. But the point of the prodigal story is the father also loved the older brother and was proud of him. So as we've kind of evolved through this, um, we ended up leaving our church. It was mutual. But it was very mutual. Um... (laughs) And then my wife was just like, I don't believe any of this. And so then it was like I was the believer in our house, and she was the, she wasn't an atheist. She was like a, like a I don't give a shitist. <laughs> and um, <laughs> like agnostic, I, I would care way too much if I called myself an agnostic. And uh, I just kind of like left space for that. And... Um, and we did brunch for a while. I don't know if you've ever done brunch two weekend days in a row. It's incredible. <laughs> like, I never knew, like, you could just eat waffles Saturday and Sunday. Because <laughs> I'd always been a Baptist. And Sunday, like, you got up earlier than Monday. And, uh, and then I realized, like, I can't do it. I'm not a Sunday bruncher. I want to go back to church. And my wife and children were like, no. So we went to another church, and, uh, and when we joined that church, my wife was really clear, I don't know what I think about all this, I don't really care, and because I was rolling with the Methodists, they're like, awesome, we're just really happy someone here under the age of 65 has uh, come to the building, and um, I love, you know why I love the Methodist church? Because I could like make jokes on the internet, and they're still like, "We love you, Sides Mike." Um, yeah, please keep bringing young people. And uh, but the funny thing happened: we got kind of got in this church, and she felt like she belonged again, and that she was just like a Christian again. And I was like, "What's wrong with you? Don't you understand that like belief is a personal profession?" Wait, I'm not a Baptist anymore. 
Don't you understand that belief is a personal experience? Wait, I'm not an evangelical anymore. And then I realized one day, like, my wife has a historic Christian faith. The Bible speaks to communities. When the Old Testament speaks of the salvation and deliverance of the people, it doesn't say the persons. Paul's letters, most of the New Testament, was designed to be read aloud to groups. It's meant to be a social faith. And I realized one day that my wife had a first century Christianity and I had a post-enlightenment one. I don't know, now we're pretty good. But we're pretty good because we've no longer, we don't try to convince each other to believe the same stuff anymore. My wife and I have never been more comfortable disagreeing about even really important things. We don't care because our, our family's not a cult. <laughs> it's not. Uh, my wife and I are holding hands through a roller coaster called life. And when she has a really bad day, I hold her. And when I have a bad day, she holds me. And it doesn't matter like what we believe. The most amazing thing happened last week in my house. My oldest and youngest daughters debated about whether hell was a thing or not. <laughs> like my youngest is like really convinced hell's a literal place. And she's afraid that like her older sister's going there because she doesn't believe in hell. <laughs> And then I was like, I don't believe in hell either. And, you know, she's like. But I didn't, like, try to force her to believe like I believe. Because if I try to just replicate my faith into my wife and children, I'm just setting them up for a, a failure. But if I try to teach them how to receive a new understanding of God as needed as life moves and changes, then I'm setting them up for a lasting faith. But I also understand that may be no faith at all. Uh, if Christianity is just like convincing people a set of ideas, it's really uninteresting. And it, it seems relatively unrelated to the work and teaching of Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus talked about the faith, it, yeah, it was about loving God, it's about loving your neighbor, but then to create an exegesis of his own statement, a hermeneutic, he told a parable that involved nothing but putting love into action. So if my kids care about never passing by the one on the side of the road, and my wife does too, I'll take it. So I'm very curious about your views about the psychological adaptability of Christianity. Like, right do you on. think it's adaptive as a faith? The thing is, the do you think part? it's adaptive as a faith? Like, oh, super adaptive. Yeah. Would you expound on that for a little while? Um, and how? I can throw you more things if you want. If you want to <laughs> throw more things, throw more things. Okay, so often in the church, anxiety is taught as a, like, something we need to, like, a sin. And obviously okay. we could talk about yep. sin. We could go off on a tangent about sin itself. But I'm more so thinking it doesn't work when people confront their anxiety or depression, like, as a sin. Um, I don't see it to work at all. So I'm just curious um, about your reflections on that. Perfect. That yeah. helps. Okay. Christianity is one of the most adaptable belief systems ever. 
Um, people are like, the, the church is dying. The church dies over and over. That's what it does. It's a death and resurrection faith. Um, and every movement in Christianity is a reaction to something else and social changes, and then it ceases to be timely, and the gospel mutates and moves on. Now, if it sounds like I'm spouting heresy, well, maybe. Uh, but everyone does. Every Christian is some other Christian's heretic. Show me a Christian, and I will show you someone who says they're in rebellion against the church. Right? John Piper, in rebellion against Rome. The Pope, been excommunicated by the Greek Orthodox. The Greek Orthodox, been excommunicated by Rome. <laughs> Everybody, right? And if you're, if, you're, if you're a Reformation person, right, you're, you're a heretic. You're Catholic. You're, it doesn't matter who you are, you're somebody's heretic. So with that understanding, um, that the word heretic is almost meaningless, I love this slightly uncomfortable energy in the room. Where's he taking this? <laughs> A faith that adapts is the most biblical thing in the world. The Reformation was born out of legitimate problems with Catholicism. Different Christian denominations responded to different societal contexts. Paul Hellenized Christianity so it worked and was available to Gentiles, and there was a big fight because he said they don't have to uphold the whole Torah, which was scandalous for Christians who actually knew Jesus, right? If you look in the Bible, the, the people that followed Jesus were in Jerusalem, and they were the Christianity is a movement of Judaism folks. But in the Bible itself, over and over, different images are presented for God to meet different contexts. We got a God in the first part of Genesis who creates a, with a cosmology exactly like every other culture in the world had, only he didn't cut open other gods' guts to do it. This is a God who said it's good, who was excited about creation. That's a big point. That's a major, major progressive theological point for that cultural context. And then that God became a, a burning bush that talked about existentialist ideas. I am that I am. I will be that which I will be. Think about it. You'll get dizzy. Um, <laughs> and this presented a new understanding for a people in exile. And over and over what you see is different understandings of God in response to exile appearing in the Bible's text. So if we talk about modern psychology, probably the dominant normative understandings about mental health and emotional stability in Christianity are heavily influenced by the rise of Protestant fundamentalist Christianity primarily in the 1940s. It's a very remarkable figure named Billy Graham. He took rural tent revivals, he took them into the cities. He took the same liturgy from the tents into stadiums 
and tens and thousands of people came forward to be saved. Now, I don't know if you know this, America wasn't a secular nation at the time. Where were all these new converts coming from? The main line. <laughs> They'd probably been confirmed when they were 11 to 13. <laughs> but Billy Graham talked about the necessary personal salvation experience and described a God who was intimate and close. And to a lot of people who were, grew up with a distant but philosophically elegant God, craved a personal God, and then they became evangelicals. And you had this period where the mainline church did this. That period's actually still going. Uh, and the evangelical church did like this. But now the evangelical church is starting to do like this. Oh, no. What's happening? Society's changing. The theology doesn't work anymore. This personal God, it's wonderful, but this personal God demonizes really normative human behaviors. This personal God encourages a single narrative homogenous culture, not real compatible with multiculturalism. Right? So, what do you have? You have evangelicals, what are they doing? They go, what, one of two things. They go back to the main line, because <laughs> they just need some mystery, man. I just got to be grounded in the liturgy. I need some incense and some candles. <laughs> Recite some prayers. This is cutting edge stuff. <laughs> and they're like they're following their grandparents and great grandparents. Or they become skeptics or post religious spiritualists, which is fine because it's a reaction to something. Funny thing. This is becoming a recurring theme in these events. So sorry for internet people who've heard this before, but. The children of atheists are very likely to become religious. Atheists have some of the highest affection rates in the family of any religion. <laughs> because even if they're like better thinkers or whatever, um, even, if they, even if they have a very good way of discerning facts about physical reality, skepticism and indeed even humanism fails to meet some fundamental cognitive biases endemic to human brains. This is why in secularized Europe, right now there's a fundamentalist revival, right? Because these, these people, they're like <laughs> rebelling against secularism. It's incredible. Um, that's gonna keep happening. So the second part of your question, the relationship between uh, demonizing depression and anxiety as spiritual conditions or consequences of sin, science is just tearing that to pieces. And people in their own lives are seeing the different efficacy of having people put their hands on you and pray that the demons be released and that you be stronger in your faith and defeat this depression or seeing a counselor and maybe if you have clinical depression, taking a pill that restores more normative brain function. And in their own experiences, they go, wow, this one keeps working. That starts to undermine this understanding. But do I think this is the end of Christianity? No. Christianity is just kind of overdue for another reformation. I think that's what's happening. That's what's happening. It's happening on the West Coast. It's happening in Brooklyn. The least religious cities in the country are becoming the epicenter of a more open, scientifically informed 
Christian faith and practice, and I think that's amazing. And it may not be culturally dominant like the last two American Christian movements have been, and that's great because Christianity is not an empire religion. Christianity is a religion that formed under the boot of an empire and resisted it. So a Christianity that says these are the rules, you must all follow them, looks more like Rome and less like Jesus. But a Christianity that says we stand with the broken, that we stand with the Samaritan and the Muslim and the atheist and the gay man looks more like the first century and not less. And I get really excited about a post-Christian America because it may allow the gospel to return. <laughs> I'm here with uh, my wife and my uh, brother and sister-in-law. and um, So, kind of going off of what you were just talking about with the, the difference in effectiveness between people praying for healing and taking a drug, you know, that are taking a pill that would produce, you know, a similar effect. Uh, we've come from a, a more traditional understanding of God's involvement in the world where, you know, you pray for things and God, you know, when you get something good, God is the source of that good thing, right? And as we're becoming more and more aware of different ways of thinking and, um, like, really into open theism right now, you know? like Shout out to Greg Boyd. Greg Boyd. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Man, that guy's got some amazing things to say. Um, so, I guess the problem is we're wondering why to pray at all. Oh, yeah. You know? Why? I, I do. Why, you know? And, and if we pray, what, what reason, like, do we ask for things? Or am I, just, am I just doing it because it's good for me? You know, am I just doing it because I could be praying to anything, any God, and it would be equally as healthy and effective to me mm-hmm. as long as I, I believe that God to be peaceful and loving? But, like, but why pray to the God of the Bible? Okay. Um, first of all, excellent question. I've heard um, the best-selling book, Finding God in the Waves, <laughs> has a chapter called Teach Us Neuroscience to Pray that may wrestle with those issues in some depth. Um, but we'll, we'll kind of skim them, and then if you want more, I, I think the book's available downstairs. So... Um, <laughs> See what I did there? Commerce. Um, when I lost my faith, prayer did it. That was like the final thing. First, I lost my faith in the Bible, but prayer was really kind of the grounding of my faith. And then when I lost prayer, it's curtains. Richard Dawkins challenged me, not personally, in his book, <laughs> The God Delusion, to pray to a milk jug. Pray to a milk jug, why would I do that? Well, he's like, in Christian prayer, intercessory prayer, asking God for something, 
We say that God answers in one of three ways. Yes, no, maybe. Or no. Yes, no, wait. Right? That's everything that can happen. Um, if I pray that I want to sell 500 tickets in Augusta, Georgia for an Ask Science Mike event, God, I need to sell 500 tickets in Augusta, Georgia for Ask Science Mike. I could sell 500 tickets. God said yes. I could sell 200 tickets. God said no. The venue could burn down. God said, wait. <laughs> right? So, I did this. I prayed to a milk jug about a promotion at work, and I got the promotion. And I was like, praise ye 2%. And uh, <laughs> that hurt. That hurt a lot. So then I became an atheist, and uh, I didn't really pray anymore, because it's ridiculous. Like, sometimes I would start praying, and I would just be like, whoa, what are you doing? I guess you're talking to yourself. Just talk to yourself. Um, just not allowed. People think it's weird. And then I had, you know, my, like, mystical thing. It's in the book. And I came back to faith. But I was still weird about prayer because I didn't want to talk to a milk jug. And I discovered neurotheology, which talks about the neurological benefits of prayer. And it also talked about the neurological benefits of meditation. And I'd picked up a meditative practice as an atheist that I actually found really beneficial. And then I discovered, like, Christians meditate too. Not a thing Baptists tell you. Um, there's like centering prayer. There's contemplative prayer practices where the goal is not to treat God as a vending machine that if you make the right offering, you get the right can of soda or promotion or healing or whatever, but to be in the presence of God and by being in that presence to be transformed. And in a contemplative approach, when you would pray for example, that the hungry be fed, you would understand that as the body of Christ, you are the one to do the feeding. Very powerful. So for a while, I was just a contemplative guy, and I didn't do intercessory prayer. And then when I was writing the chapter about prayer in my book, I got a call because my dad had a stroke like a major stroke. And they said, you, you've got to come now. He might not make it. So me and my mom, his ex-wife, drove four hours, and on the way, we just started praying. And I didn't pray contemplatively. I asked God to heal my dad. And when I got to that hospital room, and here was Superman, my dad, his face etched in pain, more accurately half his face etched in pain, the left side of his body completely limp. I kept praying. I put my hands on my dad and I prayed. 
and I still wasn't pressing keys on the vending machine. In that moment, my prayer was an admission of my own helplessness and powerlessness and an expression of grief and feeling and desire. I had no one to ask. The doctors were going to do what the doctors did. And for several days, when I prayed, I didn't sit in contemplation. I old school Southern Baptist put my knees and my nose on the carpet of my hotel room. I cried a lot. Dad got better. Praise God. What if he didn't? If I say that dad got better just because I prayed, this raises all sorts of really thorny issues. Because when I talk about my dad's miraculous recovery, I may end up sending one of my friends who said the same prayer in the same situation, but their dad died or was paralyzed for 18 years into an existential tailspin and even a loss of faith. So I think we can have a redemptive perspective on prayer that allows us to pray by speaking to God but to do so in a much more open, uncertain way than we once did. So am I done with vending machine prayer? Yes. Am I done with intercessory prayer that allows me to express loss, hopes, dreams, and fears to a God that somehow I believe listens? I think I'll do that for the rest of my life. That's too somber to go do, 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 do. Uh, right here, all the way up front. You talked earlier about, um, about kids, about education a little bit. I wanted to ask a question specifically about parenting, um, and it's kind of two parts. One, as you, um, I know, are consciously aware, taking in a lot of information about what's going on in the world, a lot of it sucks. It's horrible. Yeah. It's depressing, sure. um, especially lately. And so I'm curious for you as a parent, um, as you take in that information, um, how do you still, like, parent as, as you're grieving, or as you're depressed, as you're angry, and you have to be present for your children, and you don't want to bring that anger, that depression, that, that angst, or whatever the news or the Twitter feed is, is causing in you. Um, so do you have any tips on like boundaries or how you manage that and then the second part of that is um, when it is appropriate for your kids to know your kids are a little older than mine but um, you know they know what's going on in the world and and when they get to a certain age they know whether you're telling them or not but particularly when you're still the main source of information about what the world is and how it works how do you present them you've talked about multiple narratives and that, that was a help that was part of the answer for me but um, how do you know what to share, how to be real, um, and not have them come to you at a certain point and be like, why didn't you tell me? Um, but also not to crush their spirits. Yeah, yeah. Um, I follow the teachings of the great moral philosopher Fred Rogers. 
You ever go back and watch his footage? Oh, man. What a legend. I have this printed out on a little piece of paper in my office at home. His quote about when bad things are happening, look for the helpers. They're always there. There's some scary stuff right now. Historically, it has been scarier. And any abhorrent, terrifying moment in history, there have been helpers. Uh, I watched Schindler's List recently to remind myself of that. So when my daughter, oldest daughter, November 9th, came out excited to talk about Hillary Clinton's victory, and we said, well, and she started to cry before we could describe it, um, and we were like, well, it's, got, you know, we're, it's okay, it's okay, and she said, Dad, what about, and she named a specific girl's name, one of her close friends, who's a Muslim American. And A, I was proud that her grief was not one of political identity, but one of a personal expression of fear and compassion. But two, I said, hey, we're never going to give up on, and I said the girl's name. I said, I will do everything I can up to and including losing my life to protect the rights of your friend. And that's scary. We don't want to set our children up for chronic anxiety and fear. But neither do we want to put them in a bubble where one day the world crushes them. And this means what we have to do is as children are ready, tell them about the news and emphasize the power of their agency. This is new for a lot of us white folk. But I've learned that some of my friends of color, who, as one recently reminded me, has a PhD in suffering, they have known how to talk to their children for years about scary societal oppression, but to still have hope. One of the biggest things, and I speak to my white friends for a moment, that we progressive or liberal white people have a, a, a grave, grave problem with is being sympathetic towards people of color instead of empathetic, and we can be paternalistic, and we can do the same thing that more conservative folks do and define marginalized ethnicities by their suffering. But there is a profound joy in African-American communities. There is a resilience in the face of adversity that those of us who have not learned to suffer well don't have yet. 
And part of what I do is I don't just take cues from Fred Rogers. Um, I take cues from people who know how to be real with their children about the world, but still give them hope and joy and presence. So we talk politics as much as the kids want, and we always talk about what we can do. We always talk about how we can be a good friend to everyone, but we also go watch stupid action movies. Or, uh, you know, my daughter wants to go to Harry Potter World for her birthday, so we're doing that. I wasn't going to do that because it's ridiculously expensive, but I decided in this context, a little escapism is going to be really fun right? So we've all got wands, we're going to wear robes, uh, and uh, we're going to go find our Patronus in a dark time, right? And uh, by the way, my Patronus is a slice of pizza. Um, <laughs> and that's what we do. Um, and finally, on parenting, Give yourself some grace. You have these crazy self-expectations. You know what I mean? Like, historically speaking, and I mean pre-civilization, successful parenting means they lived. <laughs> and we're like, what if they don't get a PhD from Harvard and experience ultimate joy and transcendence by 11? And, you know, what if, what if in therapy they have unkind things to say about me? And that's just going to happen. You will mess your kids up. So all you can do is make sure they always know you love them and the love is unconditional. And that will cover up everything else. I speak from experience. I was bullied so bad as a kid. And I got through it. Why? Because my parents loved me. And I never doubted. My parents loved me. Now, the greatest of these is love. One of the things I really wanted to talk about is earlier, you mentioned the fictitious news that seems to be pervasive, especially in social media. Mm -hmm. This isn't really new. There's been lots of propaganda for years, but it's easier to access now. I, I think we could agree with that. Social sure. media, things like yeah. that. Anyway, uh, how, do you, how do you want to approach that sort of a thing? So what, like, how do we define what's fake? How do we define what, where real facts lie? And then also, yeah. how do we encourage one another to do that sort of research on our own with others yep. and get unbiased pieces of media that aren't, uh, that aren't written by underwriters? And when I say underwriters, I mean advertisers. Yes. Um, even NPR has underwriters, which is ridiculous because it's national public radio. So um, this is sort of, a, sort of an agenda of mine, I guess, because I'm a big proponent of value for value models, if you want to be paid, get Patreon. Try not to get advertisers because then you're beholden to their agendas. Um, I've had advertisers, though. Yeah, it's a tough one, though, right? Pinatagrams was a lot of fun. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I just kind of wanted to, to throw that out there. Um, as, you know, I'm a No Agenda Show listener, if you've heard of that. They're mm -hmm. the big proponents of value for value and no, no advertising. Um, so I just wanted to see your thoughts on that and how do we approach that, you know, as unbiased as possible using scientific method and moving forward. Yeah, okay, great question. First of all, an upcoming episode of the Liturgist Podcast is going to be called, How Do We Know? 
and it's going to be an exploration of this topic in incredible depth with people we interview that know about that stuff. Um, so people we don't know yet that know about that stuff. Uh, it's really tough. We're kind of talking epistemology, We're talking media literacy. Uh, there's a book called The Information Diet. It's fantastic. Um, the problem is not that fake news exists. The problem is fake news and real news all look the same in Google and Facebook. Just look exactly the same. Um, <laughs> I saw one study that showed that 38% of conservatives consistently share and believe fake news, whereas only 19% of liberals. <laughs> and like one of my friends like trumpeted this, like go liberals. I was like, hey, one in five is terrible. <laughs> you need to math. Um, and it is, I honestly think it is tearing civilization apart. Um, there's no such thing as unbiased news. It doesn't exist. People are biased. We do have some very concerning economic incentive structures in media today where the primary value is views to get advertisers to pay for things. And based on the human brains work, the more sensational you can say it, and the more you tickle someone's sense of identity, the more likely they are to click or watch. And this incentive structure favors Donald Trump-like people because Trump says outrageous things, and so people go, finally, and other people go, I can't believe it, but they all turn on the television, and media companies have record quarters. And so then advertisers on the sideline are like, whoa, 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 we love money. <laughs> so if MSNBC is like kind of like left-leaning, but still mostly reasonably remotely factual, and Fox News is like maybe a little more right-leaning, but still outside of the screaming opinion people, actually does, studies have shown, a reasonably factual portrayal of news. The problem is they don't go, and now we're switching to opinion. <laughs> the audience just goes, it's all news. MSNBC does the same thing. CNN is like, no, no, we're totally in the middle. And they're not. <laughs> they're skewed both ways. And uh, So these other people are going to say, well, if, if a little leaning is work, working and getting dollars, what if we just make stuff up, right? And I put a post on Facebook today because I saw like three liberal fantasies in a row in my newsfeed, just totally divorced from fact. And they would take one statement that was true and then build an entire non-existent fantasy piece on it. And uh, people I respect who are really smart were sharing this stuff. I'm like, this is, this is not helping. Um, so how do, we evaluate, how do we evaluate things? Number one, this is why skepticism and critical thinking are important. I expect everybody to show me their data. I expect everybody to cite their sources. And the news cycle is slower for me because it takes me longer to read stuff because I click all the links and read those too. <laughs> and if they cite a paper, I have... 
subscription access to a lot of journals, I'll go read the paper. And I don't mean like the newspaper. I mean like the scientific paper. Uh, I also, believe it or not, I do not primarily consume news on social media. I primarily socialize on social media. As it's great for socializing. If you're like, hey, what are you doing this weekend? Facebook's amazing, right? <laughs> if you're like, hey, let's all Photoshop pictures of cats together, Twitter is incredible. Um, <laughs> but if you're like, hey, let me get an informed perspective on what's happening in the world, I don't go to Facebook or Twitter. And I've now, as a discipline, I'm hiding all news articles that show up on Facebook. All of them. I am pruning my Facebook from news. It's not a news feed. It's a bad name. It's a friend feed. Where do I, what do I do? Uh, my daily discipline, I do listen to NPR. Uh, I'm aware of the underwriting bias, right? So what I, what I, I'm okay if you have bias if you tell me about it. Great. Um, I read the New York Times. I read the Washington Post. I read USA Today, understanding that it's a real mixed bag. And I also read the Wall Street Journal. Why do I read the Wall Street Journal? Because they've got an opposite bias that will check my assumptions a lot. But they're still mostly going to cite sources. They're going to have fact checkers. They're not, they get in a lot of trouble if they misrepresent what someone said. Um, and then I also read a lot of news magazines for commentary on issues that happens weeks and months later. And I try to make sure, uh, I'm pretty, pretty dang liberal these days. There's some really good conservative news magazines that are not Rush Limbaugh style thinking. Uh, there's some incredible conservative voices out there. And, um, and so I'm constantly trying to check my biases and check my assumptions, but it means I can't quite keep up with the treadmill everybody else is on, uh, which is tough because people, because I'm a podcaster, people want to know what I think about things. What do you think about blank? I don't know yet. What do you mean you don't know yet? It happened 12 minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out to the my must ability what actually happened. Um, and... Scaling things is tough. I think value for value is an interesting model. I think most people don't want to pay. They want free, which brings advertisers into the picture. Uh, so we've, I've done advertising on Ask Science Mike, but I've been really careful to work with advertisers that don't have any interest in what I say on the program. Sanebox wants to clean your email inbox they do not care about what you think about science and religion. Pinatagrams, that was just hilarious. <laughs> they uh, became patrons on Patreon, uh, and I was like, wait, you do what? And I made them sponsors on the show. And they're like, well, no, we don't want a sponsor. I was like, no, you're, I'm, you're my sponsor now. <laughs> you mail people little pinatas. <laughs> That's amazing. And then when they did the, like, you could mail a Hillary or a Trump pinata. That was so good. Uh, 
We've talked. We might do sponsors sometime on the Liturgist podcast. We haven't like ruled that out because um, we're trying to do an NPR level production quality on that show with four people. So basically, we are all just tired all the time, <laughs> and we need to grow that team, which means like building an organization. It's really tough if your principals are me and Michael Gunger, who are like the most organizationally antipathy people you can imagine. It's like, um, but if, if we want to keep doing these shows regularly and substantively shift conversations, we're going to have to have more revenue. And I, I don't know, we're just frustrated idealists. We, we don't want to bring money into the thing, which is why most episodes we even forget to mention we have Patreon. We, we literally ship the shows and go, oh my God, we forgot again uh, because we're so busy just trying to like share a story and that's what we get excited about. Um, it's a lot of work. You've got to learn to evaluate scientific claims for yourself. You've got to learn to look for warning signs in media, no author attribution, uh, no date on an article, ooh, um, single source uh, quotes, quotes that don't mention the time and date or context in which the quote happened. Um, all those things are, are big red flags. Uh, but also, I gotta be honest, all caps, I'm done. You got an all cap sentence in the article? <laughs> I'm banning your domain, I'm never looking at it again. Um, yeah, this is, this is like the, I don't know, maybe like the defining issue of our time. I, I'm really deeply concerned about it. And that's uh, in addition to this riff of an answer. We're going to do a whole podcast on it with the liturgists. Great question. And by the way, right-leaning libertarians, there's a lot of you in the liturgist podcast and Ask Science Mike audience. I've learned it's amazing. The people voting for Trump that listen to these podcasts didn't say a word until November 9th. And then on November 9th, all of a sudden, I realized like maybe a quarter of the audience voted for Trump, which really surprised me. Um, but I'm glad you're here. If you voted for Trump and you listen to the Liturgy's podcast, you're a real weird person. <laughs> and I'm into that. I'm really into that. Um, like I just, I want to understand, like, I really love the episode on, like, black and white racism in America and LGBTQ, and I voted for Donald Trump. Like, I, let's sit down, have a beer, you unpack that for me. I want to know. So I wanted to know how PTSD um, works in the brain and how do you recover from it instead of letting it get worse and worse and escalating? Fantastic question. Uh, PTSD is... Uh, more than just in the brain. It's in the whole body. PTSD is trauma so severe that it creates a lot of false positives that give you flight or fight or danger responses in everyday living, neurologically speaking. So the way your brain works, when you think of something, anything, with a brain scanner, we can kind of understand how you feel about that thing. So if we mention a person's name and you just get a little activity in your prefrontal cortex, 
and your hippocampus, you know that person, but you don't really think or feel anything about them. If we see like a lot of activity in your anterior cingulate cortex, you're pretty affectionate toward them. If we see a lot of activity in your amygdala, you're probably like kind of afraid of them or angry with them. If you have your anterior cingulate cortex and your amygdala, it's probably one of your parents. And uh, <laughs> I just think that's hilarious. That's an oversimplification, but it's funny. Um, and so when you remember a person or an event that was deeply traumatic, you get a lot of amygdala activation. And your brain, in order to function, will try to avoid things that trigger that neural circuit. I'm oversimplifying dramatically. Uh, until you get something that kind of your brain says is similar to that circumstance, and then you have like an unexpected, overwhelmingly strong reaction, an anxiety attack, a flash of extreme anger, an emotional outburst. And what we understand about PTSD is um, that trauma is so intense, it affects the neurons in your GI tract, and it starts to affect the chemistry of your stomach, and it affects the balance and ratio of different species of bacteria in your gut. It um, causes you to produce excess amounts of cortisol, stress hormone. Uh, it affects the whole body. It's pretty hard to treat because with normal trauma, I hate that that's a word, with normal trauma, if you can talk about what traumatized you in a safe environment, you can begin to condition your brain to have less and less amygdala response to the thing you're th remembering or thinking about. But PTSD is characterized that whenever you try to discuss, even in therapy, the traumatic thing, the amygdala response is so extreme that it continues to be self-reinforcing. And that's one of the things that characterizes the difference between a, a normal grief or trauma and PTSD, is PTSD is so self-reinforcing. So if you have a grief or trauma in your life, you can get pretty good therapeutic effects by praying about it or talking to trusted friends and family. If you have PTSD, you really need to work with a trained professional to process that, and it may include a medical component um, because it's so difficult to get the brain to believe that you're not actually in immediate danger whenever you recall that event. And I think it's really vital that those of us who aren't experiencing PTSD don't minimize or erase the experiences of those who are. Because this is not a, a soft science. The effects of PTSD are well documented. The diagnostic criteria is um, for a psychological condition quite clear. And some of our bravest people experience this. Um, I don't want to get into like an a, a, a overcultural 
you know, military worship, but a lot of soldiers experience PTSD, but so do EMTs. Um, and a lot of people who work with people in high-risk, vulnerable situations experience PTSD. Um, So I'd love to see if culturally we could come up with healthier responses to people who have episodes related to PTSD. If we could just create a little extra grace and a little extra space as they go through the hard work of healing their brains. Like PTSD is a, is a significant enough condition that it's, it's brain scannable. Um, and that's... Considering the very low resolution we can scan a brain today, that's saying something. You know, like I talk about brain science. I want to be really clear. Like we're talking about Galileo talking about the solar system when we talk about brain science today. <laughs> Our telescopes that look into the brain, very low resolution. One voxel, one little unit of information in an fMRI includes millions of neurons. Every single little pixel, three-dimensional pixel includes millions of neurons. So the very best, most cutting-edge neuroscience today is dealing in gross overgeneralizations. And then the media tends to overgeneralize the overgeneralizations that comes from the experiment, which is why I say it's so significant that PTSD has such consistent characteristic signs in the brain and in the body. Thanks for your work. I'm a recovering Baptist as well. Actually, uh, got married at a Baptist church in Tallahassee uh, that I used to work at. So what's up? Uh, I got married in a Baptist church in Tallahassee. It, That's so weird. It is weird. It is weird. Uh, so one of the things I like about you that you talk about on the podcast a lot is that you, you cry a lot really easily. Um, and I, I used to be that way too. Um, but I had this bizarre experience growing up they called us like the cursed class I had like 15 friends die in a span of like five or six years uh, and I realized like the last couple of funerals I went to like I couldn't emotionally engage with that anymore um, and I'm like 34 now and I think maybe in the last 10 years I've cried maybe twice uh, and I find now when I start to feel sad like it turns into anger Mm-hmm. And I can't really release it anymore. And yes, I'm in therapy. And yes, I'm on some drugs. Uh, <laughs> but I'm just curious from like a neuroscience standpoint, from like rewiring your brain, is there a way to, to connect like the, the physical act of like crying and releasing that sort of emotion um, with the sadness that you're feeling? Yeah. Great question. I've done it. That's why I'm quiet for a second. I'm trying to... Think about how that happened for me. Well, first of all, it's a defense mechanism. Um, Crying doesn't feel good. And we've kind of culturally reinforced that crying's not okay, especially for men. And so you have this cultural conditioning that says it's not okay to cry, combined with like it's unpleasant and we characterize uh, positive or healthy emotional development in the West a lot with stuff that feels good. 
and we say grief is a thing you do at a funeral. But if you cry four days in a row after your mom dies, people are like, okay, that's enough. They don't say that, but their social cues say that. Tuesday, I listened to you cry. Why are you crying again? And so we have several defense mechanisms that help us avoid grief. Uh, My favorite is intellectualization, where you take your analytical capacity and turn it inward and dissect your own feelings, which makes them magically evaporate. Um, I am really good at that. Um, Sadness, intense sadness, involves a dance between the anterior cingulate cortex and the amygdala and the orbital frontal cortex. And um, once the amygdala is kind of fired up, you're real close to anger already. So converting sadness to anger is another defense mechanism. Depending on what medications you're on, some of those, if they treat depression, work by suppressing certain neurotransmitters that in the right ratio create depression, but also create sadness, can make it more difficult to grieve and to get in touch with those feelings. And um, I would just remain in continuing communication with your practitioner about what is the appropriate dosage at what times. And if healthy grieving you think is an important part of healthy living, that's a conversation you include with your therapist. Um, But assuming you don't have a pharmaceutical blockage to grief, uh, the therapeutic approach is very consistent. You keep talking. You get someone who is expert at asking very probing, introspective questions, and you answer them honestly. And at that moment you want to clam up, that's when it's most important to keep talking. And maybe you you do get angry and you just let yourself get angry and you talk through that anger. And as you do that, and as the amygdala... uh, doesn't get a flight or fight response from your therapist. That's their job. More than anything else is to not mirror your emotional responses, but to be neutral, which is incredibly difficult. It's counter to how human beings are wired. But for you to go, "Ah, ah, ah," and your therapist to go, and tell me more about that. Like, (laughs) it's it's a phenomenal gift. Um, But then as you kind of process through anger, you may begin to lose that distance and find that you can get into sadness. I learned, I went to a therapist to talk about uh, why I was so despondent about um, my church rejecting me. Because that ended up being like the most painful thing that ever happened to me. And I said, okay, we got to talk about the church. My dad just kind of got divorced from my mom. But I've already processed that. We don't need to talk about it. I was really bullied as a kid, but I've, I've processed that. We don't really need to talk about that. We just got to figure out this church thing because they're all unrelated. <laughs> and 
And then she would ask me questions and I would, she'd ask me about the bullying and I'm like, well, we don't really need to talk about that, but I can tell you all about it. And I could go through incredible detail about what happened, how I felt about it, whatever. She said, how do you feel now? I said, nothing, I processed it. And she said, uh, well, if seven-year-old you was here right now, what would you say to him? And as I thought for a second in my analytical fortress, and I imagine seven-year-old me, all of a sudden it felt like some dam was about to burst. Like I'd, I'd kind of, it's like you're walking down the hall in your house, and you walk by a door, and you're like, there's never been a door right there. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you walk towards the door, and there's just this, like, house fire heat radiating from the doorknob. And you're like, oh, that's strange. I should keep walking. <laughs> and so I said, she, she said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm, I'm feeling, like, some unexpectedly strong emotions, so I'm turning them off. <laughs> and she said, what do you mean? I said, well, I, I, I learned a long time ago, if I cried, I got beat up more, so I learned how to turn off sadness. She said, turn off sadness? I was like, yeah, all your feelings are just neurochemical reactions. I figured out where the switches are. So uh, I learned, like, if I'm going to cry, if I blink a lot and suppress the reaction of the tear duct, if I shake my head to throw off my inner ear, if I realize I have tension in my core and relax it and control my breathing, I don't cry. And I learned in cognitive behavior therapy that thoughts can lead emotions. I just turned my feelings off. And she said, okay, that's an effective coping strategy. But what if you didn't do that? Why would I not do that? You just want me to cry? What, like, what productive thing is going to happen if I cry? And she's like, why does it have to be productive? I was like, because I have limited time. If I have n number of seconds on the earth, I want a very small fraction of them to be spent being sad or angry. And she's like, why is anger bad? And then I realized a lot of things about myself. <laughs> and so then we decided, like, I was going to cry. And then I realized <laughs> I've trained myself to not cry so much that I couldn't. Because the biofeedback, I'd never heard that term, but that I'd taught myself to do when I was eight, had become automatic. As soon as I started crying, my brain executed a script that sent it away. And so I spent like several weeks learning to cry by biofeedbacking my biofeedback. <laughs> so I would start to relax my stomach. They go, no, don't relax your stomach. Right? I start to control my breathing. I go, don't control your breathing. I start to squeeze my eyes. I say, don't squeeze your eyes. I'm a weird dude. And, um, <laughs> and I remember like the first time I cried about my childhood bullying. I didn't get to the church stuff yet. That was like the mother of all ugly cries. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like snotty beard, um, <laughs> just like great fat raindrops on both sides of my eyes. Um, I think I snorted at one point. 
I mean, it was messy. And then I was like, well, I was incredibly unpleasant. That's what I said to my therapist after I cried for like five minutes. I said, okay, but how do you feel now? And I went, and I kind of walked by that door that I'd never seen in the hallway, and it was still there, but it didn't give me like, I wasn't spooked out to walk by it. I learned over and over, like, sometimes I just open that door. And eventually in therapy, we went to that door and it wasn't there anymore. It was just a hallway wall again. And I was like, whoa. And so then what we did in therapy is go kind of event by event through different things in my life and they figured out whether they would make me go to pieces or not. And eventually, like, stuff stopped making me go to pieces. And oddly enough, once I reached those points, I found that for the first time in my life, I could really wish well to some of the people that hurt me in those circumstances. Grief's amazing. So now, I grieve all the time. I grieve all the time. I'm grieving right now. Uh, You know what I'm grieving? The intimacy of Ask Science Mike Live a year ago. His rooms keep getting bigger. And um, I've realized probably a year from now, I won't be able to stand and meet every person after the event. Because right now, I love you all, but uh, 200 people a night, every night, I start getting really tired. And there's a great, I'll start crying right now. Because you know why I do this podcast? Because I love all of you. And I want to help as many people as I can get to a healthy place with their grief and their agency, and their fear, and their doubt, and their hope, and their faith, and science as I can. And if it keeps attracting people, I lose the ability to see everybody's eyes, and that makes me sad. makes me grieve. But it's essential that I do that. Or I can't do what I do. I can't be an agent of health and healing in the world if I don't allow myself the grace to heal and to grieve. Your mileage may vary. Uh, But in that situation, I have more of my own experience than I have neuroscience. Okay, right here. I literally could not, right here, second row, I could not do, 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 do after that. Um, I have a question about the concept of uh, normalization Ooh. when <laughs> uh, when atrocities are becoming more visible mm-hmm. um, and more immediate in our lives. Uh, where I am online, where I hang out online, there's repeatedly discussion that uh, what we're seeing is not normal, what we're seeing shouldn't be normal. Um, and that we don't need to accept that it's normal. But from, from what I understand, uh, normalization is something that our brain does because we're trying to feel safe in our context. Um, so rejecting that makes us more vulnerable and makes it more difficult to cope. And it, uh, especially for those of us who, like you were talking about earlier, we have the boot on our neck. Um, and those of us who are uh, mentally ill or disabled, PTSD, that was very difficult for me on the ninth 
<laughs> being up like sobbing and panic attacking mm. at night. Um, are there ways for us to protect our vulnerability without uh, turning off our consciousness of what's going on around us? How do we take care of ourselves when we're still trying to see things and enact change? Fantastic question. Really, really fantastic. My answer is a quarter formed if that. I'm trying to figure that out right now. This election reinforced some terrible habits. Right now, I want you to think how many times per day you check social media or traditional media for the events happening in the world compared to a year ago. I bet it's more. I bet you're starting to hit your iPhone like cotton candy or, you know, a bag of Skittles or whatever. Whatever your pleasure is. A pizza buffet. <laughs> that would be mine. Uh, and what are you doing? You're exposing yourself to some pretty extreme stimulus. You're expecting extreme stimulus, so you're getting a dopamine spike every time you reach for the phone. Every time the phone goes, mm, you're getting a dopamine spike. Only it used to be the dopamine spike was, did someone like the picture of my kitten so I get social validation? Or did someone um, send me a message so I'm remembered so I get social validation? Mm. Did someone say something bad about me on Twitter because it's on? Because I get social validation? <laughs> to now... Did my phone go, because mm, the world's about to end? That's <laughs> where we're at. That's where we're at. Um, all of us. I'm not being partisan right now. Everybody's like, we're just, I just watch people. So step one, I turn off all the notifications on my phone. All of them. Unless I get a call or a text message. Nothing else makes my phone go, mm. The New York Times doesn't. Twitter sure as heck doesn't. Um, I even turned off the little icons that tell me how many notifications are waiting in an app. And then when I get good and darn ready at a certain point in the day, I catch up on what happened. The world will be fine if a couple hours go by before I know the thing. That doesn't undermine my ability to be an advocate, Right? If I find out at 4 p.m. when I'm reading news media about the, the latest way the, where the, the Dakota Access Pipeline is unfolding, I can still call my congressperson. I'm not abandoning the post by giving my brain the space to live and remember why living is a thing worth doing. Do you see what I mean? Put your phone in your pocket. Put your phone on your nightstand. Try that. It's incredible. Um, I, I do that on tour. Nobody can reach me because I know like it's so emotionally expensive to do this at night. So my phone was like this, uh, face down on the desk on the far side of the hotel room and I got as physically as far away from it as I could 
has left it there all afternoon. I never even looked at my phone. I didn't get on my laptop. I read a sci-fi novel, and it was awesome. <laughs> right? Um, so part of that normalization is the frequency of exposure. I'm not talking about checking out. I'm talking about being aware of yourself so you can actually check in effectively. Um, but then your brain, whatever you see over and over, becomes normal. I am so Trump fatigued. Every outrageous thing I imagined could happen with him is happening. So it's like that's Trump normal. You know what I mean? White supremacist in the White House? Sure, of course. Of course this is going to happen. Yeah. Oh, there's a rally where people said, hail Trump, and did an Aussie salute uh, with the founder of a movement that, that um, of White House staffer has a public affiliation with. Yeah, of course. That's how we roll now. And just because I understand that that's becoming normal does not mean I accept it. Um, it doesn't mean I won't oppose it. It just means I realize that screaming at the top of my lungs 12 times a day just wears me out and changes nothing. So I'm going to be relentless with focus on how I spend my energies to be effective at promoting life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for everybody. Um, yeah, why not? Um, and that means I'm going to be on Twitter less, not more. It means I'm going to be on Facebook less and not more. You follow me on Twitter? I don't hold back. You know what I mean? I'm not like, let's give Trump a chance. I never said that. I said it to myself. I'm like, maybe it was just like, like playing the right to get richer. <laughs> and we'll just have like a really dysfunctional presidency for a while and screw over the environment and that'll be it. That was like my best case. <laughs> and uh, doesn't look like how it's going. Um, so I'm going to be really strategic in my opposition. But I'm also going to make sure that my kids know I love them, that I remember why I love pepperoni pizza so much. <laughs> that, uh, by the way, my pizza references per hour <laughs> seem to be going up the further into tour I go. I think that's my coping <laughs> mechanism. Um, and we got to celebrate each other. You know what I mean? Um, there's been a lot of stuff lately about identity politics and how bad it is. And why can't we celebrate the common good? I might be incredibly ignorant right now, but can't we do both? Can I not celebrate our amazing differences and our amazing similarities? Can I get really excited about uh, the musical heritage of black America, but also understand the ways our economic systems are linked, I, I can do both. I can understand that I have a cultural heritage, that uh, when I say I don't have a culture, I'm perpetuating a system in which my identity is normative. So I can reclaim my heritage without becoming a white supremacist. It's possible. You know what I mean? I can say I have a cultural identity, but it's not better than anyone else's. When I say I have no cultural identity, I'm actually saying mine's the correct 
cultural identity. Um, so let, her, let your brains normalize. It's not, being stressed 24-7 won't stop it. Having the emotional reserve to have the fortitude to say, I will not rest or give up until all of our rights are protected, until we all have economic opportunity and access to education, I won't rest. I can only do that if I take care of myself. I probably should channel some of that into taking a walk and not pizza, but <laughs> I'm grieving. So uh, when I get off tour, I'm probably going to start walking a lot more other than just to the Atlanta airport. Um, but normalization is how our brains work. Uh, but normalization, it's a different to have a personal awareness that this is a thing that's happening so much I'm becoming accustomed to it than accepting it. You just maintain that distinction. I don't accept it. I just understand five times a day for the next four years, two months at least, outrageous news is coming my way. Like, it's going to be, can you believe that? No, I can't. But it, it's happening. It will continue to happen. Um, and, you know, Hopefully in 2020, we'll peel the gold letters off the White House. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and uh, I'm actually a little excited because the American electorate, it's, uh, this, is, this is supremely normal that we go in reaction to leadership in America. That is a 1776 and all, it's pre-1776. America gets mad at the people in charge and throws them out. And um, having the whole government is usually a, like a sign of doom for like 10 to 15 years for a political party because you have no excuse. So the good news is obviously a lot of people that voted Hillary, they're, they're not voting for Trump next time. But a lot of people that voted for Trump this time in four years, we'll vote for literally anybody but Trump. <laughs> and they'll probably be really mad at anyone who shares his party affiliation because that's how America rolls. Um, so we just really have to survive that long. That's it. We got to keep like, <laughs> like, we can't let them roll back uh, marriage equality rights. We can't let a, uh, a Muslim registry become a thing. Uh, I will register day one. I will encourage every person who listens to every podcast to register. I will make it useless. Um, this is, it turns out there's 190 million Muslims in America. Uh, I would be so happy. So we can't give up on like, people's rights and freedoms and protections, and we're going to have a lot of work to do with carbon levels in the environment. But um, as a science guy... Pretty disappointed with Democrats on climate science. I mean, it's not like that was going to be a great move. It'd be like, well, we're going to put slightly less carbon in the atmosphere at maybe the most critical juncture in human history. Um, so maybe another message we can send to the party of the left 
in the next election is get serious about the climate because um, maybe Trump showed that always bowling down the middle isn't the best strategy, that sometimes you do need to take a stand. And uh, 400 parts per million CO2, to me, is a stand really, really worth taking. That had nothing to do with the question. <laughs> but I felt really good about it. This is a playoff, your last, the last question. Um, it is also the last sin- question. Since the, since the election, I am just so heartbroken um, I can't, I'm actually doing the opposite. I can't bear to go online. Mm-hmm. I can't bear to read about what's happening. I get so angry. I don't know how to, how to even do what you're talking about doing, the moderation thing, and, and take care of myself. And, 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 but I, I recognize what you're saying, that, that I have a responsibility to not give up. I want to give up. Yeah. It sounds like you have a terminal case of humanity, uh, which we all do. Um, Grieve. As long as you need to grieve. It's okay. Everything's going to be fine if if it takes you a month to come to terms with the election. Everything's going to be okay if it takes you six months to come to terms with the election. Um, there's like some days, like I read the words President-elect Donald Trump and I go, oh my God, what? <laughs> that's real? That happened? That's the, that's the part of the multiverse we're in? Um, <laughs> the Cubs won and so did Trump? Like, like, oh man, like this is, this could be cool. Maybe we're all going to get wings or something. Like, just really, we're infinite in probability drive segment of the universe. Sorry, Douglas Adams reference. That's pretty obscure these days. Um, So grieve. Like, get mad. Understand, like, it's, why are you angry? Part of it is social identity. Part of it is social identity. Part of it is you had a worldview that you've realized is wrong. A prediction you made that you were confident about was wrong. Your brain hates that. It's undermined your certainty. I have been repeating an idea to myself since November the 9th. Donald Trump knows more about human behavior than I do. That's a real big piece of humble pie to eat. Um, so I have to like start. I tweeted about 2 in the morning, 3 in the morning, no, November the 9th, things I am questioning. One, everything. (laughs) And um, so I'm grieving. I'm grieving. And I'm telling other people, grieve. There's a lot of of people saying we got to get to work. That's true. Some people are ready, so get to work. But let the other people grieve for a while. If If a year from now you're like, I just, I can't call my congressman, it hurts too much, then I might be like, okay. Grieve and call your congressman. <laughs> um, but right now, yeah, it's okay. Like, the world's not going to explode because you can't get on the internet. Um, but as you kind of come to terms with this new thing, re-engage. We got work to do. And part of that work, why your grief is so important, 
white folks, our friends voted, our family and our friends voted for Trump. It's our friends and our family who voted for Trump. Uh, about a, a, a third of um, Latino and Hispanic people voted for Trump. It's a lot better than white people. Still pretty scary. Um, my African American friends, <laughs> you guys nailed it. <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry. Um, why did my family vote for Trump? Well, my family all is in rural farmland in the middle of nowhere. And they have spent a solid generation, generation and a half, maybe two, watching their counties depopulate. There's the opposite of this area. There's less people every year. It's also less jobs. There's less infrastructure and resources. They are literally watching their way of life disappear. And for, oh, a couple hundred years, elite power structures have told them that their lot in life is someone's fault. Really common cycle in cultures is blame immigrants. Happens over and over. Hey, you're disadvantaged, you know why? Those people took your job. Um, we named in this country for a while in the South. We told the people in the South, you know, you know where your money's going? All those welfare queens, right? So people in presidential offices and significant points of authority told people who have very little multicultural exposure, so they have no personal narratives to undermine the experience, that where their money is going is people of color who refuse to work. So they created this paranoia and this fear. They created a monster of racial anxiety mixed with genuine economic anxiety. And then they lost control of the monster. And it turns out Donald Trump really knows how to speak the monster's language. Only he won't speak the monster's language just to benefit economic elites. He will only speak the monster's language to benefit him. He might be the first American president with a single constituent. (laughs) They were all beholden to somebody. Donald Trump is beholden to Donald Trump. One thing that gives me hope is he is probably going to give the Republicans a fit starting January 20th. Um... And so I don't think it's going to be like a smooth, cohesive plan. Because you're like, hey, you all need term limits. And Mitch McConnell's going to go, we don't need term limits. And the first day, it's going to be attention. So, um, but what I've done in my life is hear the anxiety of my own family and say, you're a bunch of racists. My flesh and blood family And because I've identified their beliefs as racist, I've distanced myself from them. And when they didn't come along with me on same-sex marriage, I decided they were backwards. And I was superior. Like 10 minutes into my belief change. (laughs) Most of my life, I was not affirming of same-sex marriage. 
but suddenly I am and I see the light and they're fools. So in every conversation, I allow myself to what? Mr. Peace and Love gets riled up when I go home for Thanksgiving. So I over and over and over, when I talk to my family, would just tell them they were wrong, they don't get it. How would they? I lived in a, a city, had a great job. I've never worried about paying my mortgage. I've never worried about putting food on my kid's table. I get on airplanes and I fly to cities and I eat exotic foods. And of course, I understand multiple cultural perspectives. I have the economic privilege to sit across the table from whoever I choose. You know how many of my cousins have never been on an airplane? Do you know how many of my family has never crossed the state line? <laughs> I abandoned them. I elected Donald Trump. Who did I expect to have a conversation about race and privilege with my rural family? Who did I think was going to do that? I, I, I got a, a bee in my bonnet because a 12-year-old cousin came up and told me I was famous, and I laughed. And he said, no, no, you're, you're the most famous McCarg. And he said, but why are you a liberal? Is it because you go to Hollywood? And like I realized this is the, fa the, the family story about me. And so for a couple of years, I've been writing my family off. And then I'm surprised they, they don't follow my voting <laughs> recommendation. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? Like I gave up any ability to speak into their lives. And... Oh, man, I'm as useless a person as they come. Like, I couldn't defend a border. Are you kidding me? Every person in this room could just straight up beat me one-on-one -on, -one on a fight. Every single person. Without exception. <laughs> like, if you need, like, a really good blog, I got you. <laughs> if you want, like, an eloquent podcast... Now we're talking. But when my fence fell down in my backyard and I was touring, and I can't fix a fence anyway, and my poor wife is having to go outside with our two giant dogs on leashes several times a day so they can use a bathroom, who showed up and fixed my fence? Who did that? My family who's never been on an airplane. The world is complicated. It is not the job of the media to talk to my family. It is not the job of people of color to talk to my family. It is not the job of the Mexican immigrants who do, in fact, 
have jobs in that community who do pick the tomatoes to talk to my family. It's my job to get off my high horse and talk to my family. So yeah, I've got to grieve. But then I also have to stop denying who I am. I spent 12 years trying to erase my southern accent as a kid. And all of us southerners who are leaving the south in droves for the coasts are, are turning those counties red. And it's our new white fight. that has allowed oppressive power systems to capitalize on genuine economic anxiety to turn disadvantaged people against each other. So grieve. Grieve. But go to Thanksgiving. Go to Christmas. And don't turn a deaf ear when your rural family tells you how hard it is for them to find work. Because none of us will be free until all of us are free. I might be too much of a mess to finish the podcast. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Look at me being ashamed for grieving. I'm a hypocrite too sometimes. Okay. Well, thanks for listening to Ask Science Mike. It's been so good to be in Seattle, Tacoma this week, and uh, also to talk to all of my friends on the internet. I want to thank Greg Mordine for his work producing this program, Andrew Galucky for his amazing work, uh, both picking the questions for Ask Science Mike, and creating our together groups if you're in a city and you think you might be the only one who has these questions and concerns and struggles with science and faith, just go to AskScienceMike.com and click the together icon and we'll help you connect with other people nearby. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone, and I'll talk to you next week.